Here's what I want you to do. If you've got your Bibles, go to Matthew chapter 26. Um, so we just uh, took communion together as a church family, and I want to look at Matthew chapter 26 at where this Lord's Supper, this communion, was instituted by Jesus. And I want to walk through this passage because it is an Easter passage, if you will. So today's Palm Sunday, and if you were following along in Matthew's gospel, Matthew's Palm Sunday happens in Matthew chapter 21. And then for several chapters, you have uh, Jesus walking through what we call the, pass, uh, the, the Passion Week. And this passage in Matthew chapter 26, it takes place on the Thursday night before the arrest and the, uh, the crucifixion then the next day. And by the time you get to chapter 26, you know uh, that Jesus is coming to the end of his life. In fact, Jesus knows that he's coming to the end of his life. Since Matthew chapter 9 when he made a pronouncement to a paralyzed man that your sins are forgiven, there has been a plot in place to get rid of Jesus. The, the surprise in Matthew's gospel is not that Jesus is going to die. In some ways, if you were just reading the gospel, you can guess that that's the end. At least you know uh, the religious and the Roman powers of the day are going to try to get, kill him. J Jesus, so we're clear about this, he's the hero. He's the protagonist of the story. He's the man of unusual character. He's the man who teaches like nobody else. In fact, for the Jewish reader, somebody that would be familiar with the Old Testament, Matthew is portraying Jesus as the one that they have been waiting for all along. In fact, the end of Deuteronomy chapter 34 says that the Jewish world had been waiting for a prophet like Moses and that that prophet had not come yet. And Matthew's telling the story in a way to say, here he is. This is the prophet greater than Moses that we've been waiting for. And so Matthew sets the stage. It's been building uh, he enters Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, and uh, the next few chapters recount the couple of days of Jesus, and he's coming and going in and out of Jerusalem. And he's coming and going in and out of the temple court. And he was at the height of his popularity when he rides in on Palm Sunday. But as the week goes... The encounters with the religious people, they, they escalate, and his popularity with the crowd wanes. He begins to speak in parables, and he gives uh, teaching about the end times. And the parables were meant to expose the wrong ways that they were thinking about God. And the end times teaching, well, that was a warning that judgment was coming. And, and being religious... Just being religious isn't going to save you. It won't protect you. And so there's this showdown coming. And the disciples know it. And at the end of chapter 26, Jesus tells them what's going to happen the next two days. 
and it's going to be Passover, and he's going to be delivered up, and he's going to be crucified. Mary's going to anoint Jesus with oil, honors him with the extravagant gift. He's going to be sold out by Judas. He betrayed Jesus for uh, 30 pieces of silver. And in Matthew chapter 26 is this chapter, you, you could title it, Beauty and Betrayal. That's what's going on. And so what's going to happen? How's Jesus going to get out of it? It's, it's high drama. And, and we've, we've got to come through Matthew chapter 26 to get to the cross. We have to understand what's going on here and understand that Jesus' death on the cross is so vitally important. In fact, if we get the cross wrong, we get everything wrong. If we don't understand why Jesus died on the cross, then we don't understand any else of what he did. And Jesus wanted his disciples, his disciples of all time, wants us to understand what he was doing when he was going to the cross. He wanted them to know what his death was about. Because Jesus' death on the cross changes everything. And I want you to see that there are three movements. We're going to start in Matthew chapter 26, verse 17. And we're going to go to verse 29, and it is the, the Passover with the disciples. And in the midst of that Passover, Jesus is going to uh, flip the, the script on them and institute what we know as the Lord's Supper, what we are still tasting in our mouth this morning with the bread and the juice. And so the movements go like this, that the cross, it fulfills the Passover. The second bit of this is that the cross is going to come through betrayal. That's how it's going to come about. And thirdly, that the cross brings a new covenant. Well, look at Matthew chapter 26, and uh, beginning in verse 17, this is how Matthew tells the story. He says, now on the first day of unleavened bread... The disciples came to Jesus, where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed, and they prepared the Passover. So, so the first bit of this tells us where we are in the Jewish calendar when all of this takes place. It's the first day of unleavened bread. It's the beginning of the Passover feast and the celebration. And one of the things that you longed for, if you were a Jew, is to celebrate Passover in the city of Jerusalem. And to this day, when Jews in foreign lands observe the Passover, they say to each other, this year here, Next year, in Jerusalem. It's a remembrance. This is where we are now, but next year we're going to be in Jerusalem. And the idea is now we're, we're slaves. We're, we're, we're not where we want to be. Next year we'll be free men. And each of these three verses, verse 17 and verse 18 and verse 19... 
they all have the same word in them. It's Passover. And so, one of the questions there, well, what was Jesus' death about? Well, it was about Passover. And the verses announce that the time is at hand. Jesus knows what's coming. First day of unleavened bread, it marks the commemoration that we find in Exodus chapter 12. And it may be that the disciples, they're, you know, they're asking about preparations for the Passover because they know it's about to happen. And although they're unsure exactly what's going to happen, they ask Jesus. So, we know something's about to happen, but are, are we, are we going to be eating the Passover meal? And Jesus says, Yes. We are. In fact, Jesus specifically directs the events. The other gospels tell us that he'd already seen to the arrangements, and now he sends the disciples to prepare the meal. And the Passover meal was the meal every Jew took part in. It was like their Christmas. They they were coming home for Christmas. It was a commemoration of their rescue from slavery in Egypt. And Exodus 12 tells us that the very first Passover meal was given when the Israelites um, were instructed by God on the eve of the tenth plague against Egypt. It was a meal. They, they were to take a male lamb, unblemished. They were to kill that lamb at twilight, and then they were to take the blood and put it on the doorposts of their house. They were to eat the lamb. They also were to eat bread with bitter herbs. They were to eat it all. And anything that was left, they were to burn when morning came. And they were to eat it fast, fully dressed, shoes on, staff in hand. And it's called the Passover because the Lord would send the angel of death to come through that night to execute judgment on the Egyptians. It was the tenth plague. And that plague, as God instructed, would take the life of all the firstborn sons. And the, and the blood on the doorpost was the only protection. The judgment would pass over those houses. And every firstborn Israelite would know that they'd lived because the lamb had died. The lamb was the substitution, if you will. The blood on the doorpost stood over the house. A death had already been died in that household. Life had already ceased. No more death was visited on that household. So, so Passover, this is the remembrance that they were rescued, they were saved from Egypt and the promised land, and it had been accompanied by a sacrificial substitutionary death. It was a life in place of their life to save them from judgment. It was a life in place of their life to save them from their sin. And God doesn't say, hey, look, when the judgment comes, of course, it's only going to hit the bad people and not you good people. He doesn't say, listen, it's only going to hit the Egyptians, not the Jews. That it'll only hit the people who have the wrong 
religion. And he doesn't say that. And so, in other words, what God's declaring in that 10th plague is that everybody's sinners. You're all sinners. And what God's saying is that you won't be saved tonight unless you put the the blood of the Lamb on the doorpost and take shelter under it in every home in that whole country. When they woke up the next morning, there was either a dead lamb or a dead son. Jesus had told the disciples three times before this that he was going to go to Jerusalem and die. And each time they resisted. And so here Jesus is telling them in the context of the Passover, my time is at hand. And this is going to be, Jesus is saying, the Passover of all Passovers. The deliverance of all deliverances. It isn't a a Passover to just save the Israelites from their sin and and the death it brings. It's going to be a Passover for all the peoples. And it won't just save you from captivity or um, political um, aggression or, or economic hardship, that this is going to save you from your sin forever. In fact, the book of Hebrews spends several chapters unpacking what this means. In, in Hebrews 9, by means of his own blood securing our eternal redemption. In Hebrews chapter 10, the sacrifices that took place in the Old Testament, they're called a shadow. And Jesus, he's the substance that casts the shadow. Think about it this way. In the Old Testament, the the sacrifice was uh, a sonar, if you will. And and sonar, what it does is it creates a the, the pulse of sound, you know, called a ping, and then it listens for the reflections of an echo. It goes out, and it pings off of something, and it listens back for the echo. In, in the Old Testament, the sacrifices were the sound that were pinged out. It allowed them to hear the echo of what was ahead. Jesus sacrifice on the cross was what created the echo that gave the sacrifices of the Old Testament meaning. You see, what God knew all along is that Jesus is the true Passover lamb. The lamb without blemish, a life in the place of your life, a life in the place of sinners, that we would be redeemed, that we may may go to a new place with Him. We We would be rescued, that we'd go with God into the promised land. And so, the the cross and Jesus' death on the cross, it changes everything. Now, Look at the next verses, beginning in verse 20. The cross is going to come through betrayal. In verse um, 20, it says this, When it was evening, he reclined at table with the twelve. And as they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful. 
and began to say to him one after another, Is it I, Lord? So, so I said, I said, and I saying and will say, Jesus' death on the cross changes everything. And he, I want you to notice two things quickly about this. Jesus' death on the cross, it changes how we view God. See, some of us have a view of God. You, you think that, you know, when you think about him, you think of God and he's angry and that he's out to get you. And because of that, what you imagine in your mind is that the most dangerous place for you to be is in his presence. See, this scene right here, Matthew chapter 6, verse 20, verse 21, this scene can change everything for you. What do you see Jesus doing? He's reclining at table. He's, he's relaxed. He's sharing a meal, an intimate meal, a relaxed meal among friends, knowing full well that he's going to be betrayed. See, what we're looking at is the love of Jesus. And Jesus' death on the cross makes the way for God to invite us into his fellowship, to be able to, to dine with him. Now, now, changes our view of how we see God. It also, I want you to clearly notice, it changes the way that we see ourselves. So what Jesus does here, this is what he does. He speaks a, a word of conviction, and it will touch every single heart in that room around that table. Notice the response of the disciples when Jesus says, one of you will betray me. The response was not, oh, Judas, right? That's, we knew that all along. We knew it, we knew it all along. Uh, yeah. But that's not what they said. No. When Jesus said that, you know what? Every single one of them found themselves worried that it would be them. It caused them to look into themselves, and it reminds them of their desperate need to be saved. It highlights for us deep down that our hearts are broken and sinful and capable of anything. And so the, the scene, what, what it does, it highlights the need for the cross. It's like it puts this exclamation point on the need to be saved from sin and saved to a relationship with God. We'll pick up in verse 23. He says, uh, he answered, and he, uh, he who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. There's a lot of things said about that. Maybe all of them had dipped their hands. Maybe it was one specific that he was referring to, and he knew. In verse 24, the Son of Man goes it is as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, is it I, Rabbi? And he said to him, you have said so. Two things. But verse 24 there, the Son of Man goes as it, as it is written. 
This tells us this is a preordained plan of God for the redemption of the world. The Son of Man goes as it is written. this This is a statement of God's sovereignty. Jesus is not the victim of circumstances. The cross is divinely directed by the hand of God. And the second thing to notice is that Judas is absolutely culpable for what he's about to do. He is fully responsible. His sin, his treachery, it does not thwart the will of God. It's it's folded into the will of God, and Judas is going to stand guilty. What we see here that Judas was in the group but he never was one of them. So, so he hung around. He enjoyed the fellowship. He even had a place of honor as the treasurer. But, but he was never really with Jesus. For Judas, evidently, it was, it was an enterprise to be a part of, a, a group to associate with. This was some teaching to follow, but at the end of the day, he belonged to himself. He did not belong to Jesus. The other disciples, if you notice, they addressed Jesus as Lord. Here, Judas addresses him as rabbi or teacher. For Judas, Jesus was a man to get something from, status or wealth or significance or a place to belong, but but that was it. He didn't want Jesus. Let me just say as an aside, it's a, it's a sobering scene, this Passover dinner. See, one of the things that it makes us sober to is this. You, you can attend church, be in a life group, go to a Bible study, you have an accountability group. You can go through all the motions and not belong to Jesus. Judas is the warning that you can be here this morning going through the motions. And and yet the reality is you don't belong to Jesus. You belong to yourself. You, You know, you maybe you'd say you belong to a church and yet you don't belong to Jesus. You don't know Jesus for who He is. So I just say, what what rises up in your heart when you hear this? Is it the response of the 11, you know, sorrow and and searching and, um, you know, is it me? And I would say those are Fine responses. That's the evidence of the Holy Spirit, man. Sorrow and repentance, those are, those are good things. Despite what our culture would try to tell you today. Or is it like Judas and you hear that and your response is that you're worried that you might be uncovered for who you are? Listen, the first step is being found out. 
The first step is, is sorrow over your sin. The first step is this broken conviction that you need Jesus to save you. It's, it's being overwhelmed at the fact that Jesus died for you, and it's believing that. It's hoping in that. One writer said it this way, before Jesus ever is ever struck by a whip from the Roman guard, he is struck by the betrayal of one of his closest friends. It's what Isaiah means when he writes in Isaiah 53. He's a man of sorrows. There might not be any greater sorrow than the betrayal of a friend. So the passion is going to begin with a betrayal. Jesus' death on the cross is because of sin, and he knows the sorrow of sin personally. And so this scene is this is like this microcosm of the betrayal of God's people throughout the ages. His people, his covenant people, they're betrayers. Listen, this isn't only Judas, by the way. Judas, he's the imposter among them. He's going to betray him, but, but another one, his closest, is, will deny him. And they all will desert him. Well, finally, I want you to see um, the, the cross. It brings in the new covenant. L- look at verse 26. It says, Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. It's kind of like this um, movie, uh, the movie The Sixth Sense. You, you watch it through the first time, and you find yourself at the end very surprised, but then you realize once you know the ending, once you know uh, the, the, uh, the bit that the whole thing was leading to, every time you watch the movie again, you see the things you missed the first time. That's what's happening. Every time they would take communion after this, they would see what it is that they missed the first time. Verse 27, and he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So, in the middle of the Passover feast that commemorated the blood of the Lamb on the doorstep and the salvation of Israelites from Egypt, Jesus speaks of my blood of the covenant. Now, I'll give you just a little history. What's what's Jesus saying when he says that? Well, way back in Exodus chapter 24, it tells us the first time this phrase is used. Exodus 19, the Israelites go to the mountain. Exodus 20, God gives the Ten Commandments. God gives Moses some other instructions. In Exodus 24, um, they're going to make a covenant. They're going to commit themselves. Moses, he's going to give the Word of God to the people. They're going to write it down, and then all the people will say, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Moses, you have spoken from God on high, and everything that God says that came to you, we're going to do every single one of those things. 
So what Moses does is he makes a sacrifice. And he takes the blood of the sacrifice and he sprinkles it on the book of the covenant that he had just been reading from. And he reads the book, and then he sprinkles the people with the blood, a, a blood covenant. And, and so when the Bible uses covenant, it means something that God establishes in order to place people in a particular relationship with him. He does this, and God's saying, okay, this is now the relationship that we have. And the sacrifice and the sprinkling of the blood was what sealed that relationship. Now, how long did it take for Israel to break the covenant that they had just made? Here's the answer. 40 days. Actually, not even that long. And it wasn't just like a little slip. I mean, it wasn't like pledging and vowing to keep the Word of God, and then within weeks, within weeks, they were melting all of their gold and jewels and making for themselves a golden idol in the shape of a calf. And nobody stopped to say, you know what? I don't know about this. Forty days ago, we said everything God says to do, we'll do. And then, and then right up front, like I don't remember, like past five, it gets fuzzy. But I remember one of the first two said, no graven images. See, what happened is it revealed to them who they are. They, they desperately needed to be saved. It, all of this reveals to us who we are. See, when presented with a covenant of, of fellowship with God, of relationship with the God of the universe, what happens is we nod and then worship a cow. And that's why Jesus had to die on the cross. This is why he came to shed his blood. And this is why we needed a new covenant. This is the new covenant in my blood. This is why we needed a new one. In Jeremiah chapter 31, in Ezekiel chapter 36, those prophets are looking forward to the new covenant that's going to come as God declares that, hey, listen, I made a covenant with their fathers. But a day's coming when I'm going to make a new covenant. And I won't just put my law in a book that they can read. I'm going to put my law within them. I'm going to write it on their hearts. I will be their God. They shall be my people. In Ezekiel 36, I'm going to sprinkle them clean from all their uncleanness. And from all of those idols that you worship, I'm going to, I'm going to cleanse you. I'm going to give you a new heart, a new spirit. And I'll deliver you. And so the cross represents Jesus dying for us while we were his enemies. For this is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many 
for the forgiveness of sins. And he says, take and eat. This is my body, my, my, my life given for you. Take and drink. This is my blood of the new covenant poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. My, my life and my death, they are for you. If you come to the Good Friday service on Friday night at 6 o'clock, if you've never been to a Good Friday service, I encourage you to come. But we'll take communion together at the end of it. And we'll do it, we do it kind of in a special way or a, a different way on, on a Good Friday evening, and we do it by intinction where we'll actually get up out of our seats and we'll go, we'll have a couple of elders here, and they'll, they'll be holding, one will be holding a basket of, the, of bread, and another will be holding a, a cup of the juice, and you'll take the bread and you'll, you'll dip the end of it in the juice, and then you'll, you'll put it in your mouth. But as you take the bread, the elder will say, the body of Christ given for you. And then you, you take that, and, you, and you'll dip it into the cup, and, and you'll, the elder that's holding the cup will say, the blood of Christ shed for you. And you eat it. My life and my death, Jesus is saying, they're for you. And then he ends the scene in verse 29. It's, it says, Jesus says, I, I, I tell you, I will, I will not drink of it again. Uh, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Now, this is this great hope. And I'll tell you really quickly, so the Passover meal, it was eaten in four stages. If you've ever come and been at a Seder meal that we've done, well, it's been a few years since we've done it here, but we, there'll be one at White House uh, in Henderson and some other places this time. But you realize that the, the meal happens in four stages, and each stage is signaled with a cup of wine. So, so four cups of wine. And they correspond to four promises that God made in Exodus chapter 6. And the, it says, the, say therefore to the people of Israel. And, and God makes these four promises. He says, I'm the Lord and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. That's one. I will deliver you from slavery to them. That's the second one. The third one, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and great acts of judgment. That's the third. And the fourth one, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who's brought you out from under the burdens of Egypt. Now, cup one was the cup where you remembered, I, I will bring you out from under the burdens of Egypt. And so you, you drank the cup and you remembered and you celebrated. We were brought out from under the burdens that we had. And then the second cup will come around. And you would say, this is, we remember, I will deliver you from slavery. We're no longer, were we slaves of Egypt. And cup three, I will redeem you with outstretched arms and great acts of judgment. And you remember, oh, what God did to the Egyptians. And how he brought us across the the great sea, 
led us into the promised land. And, and this is where Jesus concludes it. He, he doesn't move to cup four. Cup four, I'll take you to be my people. I will be your God. He concludes with cup three. And then in verse 29, this fourth cup, the one he will not drink until we are with him in the Father's kingdom, physically and resurrected and to glorified bodies and, and forever. This is the fourth cup still to come. And you see a glimpse of it in Revelation 21, where John says, I heard, I heard a loud voice from the so throne saying, this is after the new heavens and the new earth, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. It will be the time and eternity of the fourth cup. So what happens when we take communion? Chad was talking about it this morning. If you grew up in the Catholic Church, let me tell you what I'm about to say. It would be very different from what you would have learned in the Catholic Church. I don't think there's any evidence, any reason to conclude that in communion that somehow we're bringing Christ down from heaven and locking him up in the elements of bread and wine. I don't think we're doing that. See, in communion, I think the idea is that in communion, it's the Holy Spirit, and He lifts our hearts up into the heavenly sanctuary where Christ is the host at the banquet table of the redeemed. It's what Chad said this morning. He's still the host. We're, we're brought into the presence of God. And there's these strong eschatological echoes in it, the, the end times echoes, the day to come, the, the hope that we hope. In every celebration, there's the foretaste of the marriage supper of the Lamb, a, a living memory. I'll close this morning with a borrowed illustration. It's from Lord of the Rings. One of the Hobbit's heroes, one of the four Hobbit heroes, one of the Hobbit heroes named Pippin. And he's standing at the gate of the fortress, and the gate has been broken through, and the demon king, the terrible villainous king, He's about to come in and is about to destroy all the good people inside the fort. And just as it looks most terrible, just as you're at this darkest moment, it looks like everything's over, suddenly Pippin hears horns in the distance. He hears the horns. What are the horns? Well, they're the... They're the cavalry, basically. They're coming. And, and King Rohan is leading this charge. And what's gonna, what you'll see unfold is that King Rohan is going to ride to his death, but he saves the city. Then Tolkien goes on to tell us 
that for the rest of his life, whenever Pippin heard a horn blowing in the distance, he burst into tears. Why did he do that? It's because whenever he heard a horn in the distance, he received the living memory of his salvation. Of course, he spent his whole life going about long saying, well, I know I've been saved. I remember the day I was saved. I would have been dead if it wasn't for the king who rode to his death to save my life. And he knew it. But whenever he heard the horn, it's like he knew it in a deeper way. See, the fact of the matter is that when we take the elements together like we did this morning, The bread and the, and the cup, it's, it's like the horn that blows in the distance. The Lord's Supper, we look back to the cross and the resurrection. We look forward to the, to the fourth cup. And we're between those two right now. And Jesus comes and will say like what was read in, in 1 Corinthians this morning. It's this living memory. It's the reality of your salvation. And whenever you eat and drink it, do so in remembrance of me until I return. It's the meaning of the Lord's Supper. And we can't get to the cross. We'll look at that Friday night, but we can't get there until we see Jesus have this moment with the disciples and teaching them in this very physical way that the cross changes everything. And so my question this morning to you, at the beginning of this Easter season, has it changed everything for you? Have you you tasted and seen the goodness of God in the agony of the cross for the payment of your sin and for the deliverance of your salvation. If you haven't, you can do that this morning. It's simple. You turn to God and say, you know what, I believe. I believe that. You may be having the experience, of, I don't know why I believe that this morning. And I can tell you why you believe that this morning if you're coming to that belief, and that's the Holy Spirit of God. This isn't a science PowerPoint that I'm asking you to believe. I'm asking you by faith to believe. I'm inviting you by faith to believe. If you would, would you bow your head? Father, I pray that you would do what only you can do this morning. Open our eyes. We, so that we could see your son more rightly, we want to think rightly about you. We want, Father, to catch the glimpse, to, to hear the horn sound this morning. So, Father, I pray that you would help us to turn our eyes upon you. Father, I pray that this week you would be so gracious to us. You would 
arrest our attention, maybe in ways that we don't usually notice, but that, Father, we would. We would contemplate and reflect and meditate upon the significance that you sent your only begotten Son because you love us. And so, Father, I pray you draw our eyes to him. Father, that we would worship you well. And if there's anyone here this morning that's feeling the stirring of the Holy Spirit to, for the first time by faith to say, I, I believe. Father, I, I pray that you wouldn't let them go this morning. So with this and all of the many other things that we know and are burdened by in this room this morning, we lift up to you the only way we can. And that's in the name of your Son, Jesus, and by the power of your Spirit. Amen.